Please listen carefully. Salutations, toppers, and welcome to episode 92 of the Turn of Phrases podcast. I hope this episode finds you well, and I thank you for giving me some of your time today. So, what are we talking about today? Well, we've done some proverbs on the show before, but not a ton of them, so I thought we could do an all-proverb episode. What specifically is a proverb? It is defined as a short, pithy saying in general use, stating a general truth or piece of advice. Its Latin root word is proverbium, from pro meaning forth and verbum meaning word. So let's put forth today's phrases, origins, history, and more. The first proverb of the day is, A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. This one means that no matter how hard something will be, you will never complete it unless you begin it. The literal idea behind this one is easily translated to the proverbial meaning, as you literally can't walk a thousand miles without taking that first step. So, just how long have we been using this long-distance saying? This one comes from way back in old-timey times, from ancient China. However, it was not coined by Confucius, although many people do associate this saying with him. This one is actually attributed to a Chinese text called the Tao Te Ching, which is thought to have been written sometime between the 4th and 6th century BC by Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu. The original writing translates to say, A journey of a thousand li starts beneath one's feet. A li is about three-tenths of a mile, or about half a kilometer. The Tao Te Ching was to China what Aesop's fables was to the Western world at least in the sense that it was an extremely popular collection of anecdotes with hidden meanings for a better life. Due to the widespread popularity of the Tao Te Ching, this saying became a popular form of encouragement. Now, let's get rolling. The proverb, a rolling stone gathers no moss, means that if you're always moving and never settle down, you won't prosper. It can be used to say that someone is doing too much, that someone needs to work on focusing, or even that someone is unreliable. The idea is that slow-growing moss can't get a foothold on a stone that is constantly in motion, and therefore is unable to grow. The idea behind this one can be traced back to ancient times, but the earliest written reference in English that I could find was from a 1508 collection of Latin proverbs. It was called Adagia and was written by Erasmus of Rotterdam, a Dutch Christian humanist we've heard from before. Since he listed it in a book of Latin proverbs, we know it was in use well before this time. Another proverb collector we've heard from before, English writer John Haywood, used it in a version of his long-titled work, A Dialogue Containing the Number and Effect of All the Proverbs in the English Tongue which was published in 1546, so it was definitely well-rooted in the English vernacular by this time. 
By at least the early 17th century, it had become a way to say someone would not amount to anything, which we know because of yet another fellow we've discussed before, Randall Cotgrave, the English lexicographer. In his work, A Dictionary of the French and English Tongues, he gave the following as a definition of the French word rodaire, quote, A vagabond, roamer, wanderer, streetwalker, highway beater, a rolling stone, one that does not but run here and there, trot up and down, rogue all the country over. End quote. Now we know the history, but is it true? I would say yes, based on the experiment I once watched the Mythbusters do. On one episode of their show, they rigged up a contraption to keep several stones in a constant rolling motion on top of a buttermilk moss solution that stimulates growth. After six months, not a single one of the rolling stones had grown any moss whatsoever, unlike the rocks they had sitting stationary on the same moss solution, which all had moss growing on them. So, while I suppose we can't say for sure that a rolling stone would never grow moss, it does seem that this proverb is true. Now, let's find some bad money. A bad penny always turns up means that someone bad will always come back, or a bad situation will always repeat itself. This proverb also has a literal beginning, as it comes from the practice of clipping coins. This was quite common in the Middle Ages, which was the period from the 5th to the 15th centuries. Now, people have probably clipped coins since coins existed, but the Middle Ages seems to be when this practice was most prevalent. This was a time before much was done to enforce the standardization of coins, and people would sometimes shave or clip small portions of coins off, collecting the tiny pieces over time until they could remake something with the precious metal as coins were largely made of gold and silver. This was considered by some to be a form of counterfeit. Anyway, if a coin has some metal clipped off, it's bad, because it's not worth its full value. Also, counterfeit money is bad money. We know that this literal bad currency was being used metaphorically by the late 14th century, as we find it in a poem titled Piers Plowman, thought to have been written by an English author named William Langland. I previously spoke about the poem and the author in episode 47. We don't know exactly when the poem was written, but it was most likely sometime between 1370 and 1390. Anyway, he wrote, quote, Men may like knee lettered men to a bad penny. End quote. By the 18th century, the saying sounded a bit more like we use it today. Henry Fielding, an English novelist, used it in a translation of Plutus, an ancient Greek comedy written by Aristophanes, an ancient Greek comedic playwright. He wrote, quote, This, the phrase, a very bad stamp, is literal from the Greek. It was a metaphor taken from their money. We have a proverb in English not unlike it, a bad penny. End quote. In this part of old-timey times, pennies were far more desirable than they are these days, so getting a literal bad penny was much worse than it may sound to you today. And if you had a bad penny and spent it, especially knowingly, then people believed it would make its way back to you, literally and proverbially. Now, 
let's look at something beautiful. The proverb, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, means that beauty is subjective, and what is beautiful to one person may not be beautiful to another. This one can be traced back to ancient Greece, the 3rd century to be exact. But that was in Greek, and we don't find it in its modern-day form until much later, in the 19th century. Before we get to that, let's look at when it first made its way into the English vernacular, at least in print. John Lyley, an English dramatist, wrote Euphus and His England in 1588, and included, quote, As near is fancy to beauty, as the prick to the rose, as the stalk to the rind, as the earth to the root. End quote. That's not quite the same as what we say these days, but bear with me here. In the same year, we also find it in Shakespeare's Love Labors Lost. Quote, Beauty is bought by judgment of the eye, not uttered by base sale of Chapman's tongues. End quote. That's a little closer to beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but still not quite there. Benjamin Franklin had a version in his Poor Richard's Almanac from 1741, which said, quote, Beauty, like supreme dominion, is but supported by opinion. End quote. While other people used other versions of this saying over time, the modern-day saying is attributed to Margaret Wolfe Hungerford, an Irish novelist who wrote light romantic fiction, mainly under the pen name of The Duchess. Her best-known work, Molly Bon, was written in 1878 and featured the phrase beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The popularity of her books, especially Molly Bon, helped cement this phrase into the vernacular. Now, let's do some fishing. Give a man a fish, and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. This proverb means that teaching someone to do something is better than just doing it for them, as you will be helping to make the rest of their life better, instead of just helping them in the moment. The idea behind this one is much older than the saying itself. Moses ben Maimon, also known as Maimonides, was a 12th century Jewish philosopher from Spain. He wrote about the duty of charity, which, according to him, had eight degrees. He stated that the greatest level of charity was helping someone become self-sufficient. I found several different translations and wordings, some old and some recent, but here's the oldest one I found in English. It was in the Religious Intelligencer, a Connecticut evangelical magazine, in 1826. Quote, The highest form of charity is to help sustain a person before they become impoverished by offering a substantial gift in a dignified manner, or by extending a suitable loan, or by helping them find employment or establish themselves in business so as to make it unnecessary for them to become dependent on others. End quote. In 1885, English writer Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie published Mrs. Diamond and included this line, quote, he certainly doesn't practice his precepts, but I supposed the patron meant that if you give a man a fish, he is hungry again in an hour. If you teach him to catch a fish, you do him a good turn. End quote. 
Because of this usage, this proverb is often attributed to Ritchie. While she may not have come up with the original idea, her novel's widespread popularity put the fish in the phrase and helped to make it more popular as a saying in general. And with that, it's time for today's familiar quotation. Topper's today's familiar quotation is from, well, no one knows. It's an anonymous proverb. Quote, A tree is known by its fruit. End quote. Thank you, anonymous person, for giving us today's familiar quotation. All right, toppers, it's time for today's For Better or For Words. Love advice from old-timey times. Remember that this advice is over a hundred years old, and I'm sharing it for entertainment purposes only. Now, let's hear from the ladies first. Don't expect your husband to make you happy while you are simply a passive agent. Do your best to make him happy, and you will find happiness yourself. And now for the men... Don't allow yourself to become selfish. It is so easy because wives are mostly ready to give way. Watch yourself, and if you find that you always tend to appropriate the most comfortable chair, or the warmest corner, or the most interesting book, just check the habit. All right, toppers, that's going to do it for episode 92. Thank you for lending me your ears today to turn some phrases. As I always do, I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you learned something along the way. Check out my website, turnaphrases.com, to find out information about the show's social media, for details about the music I use in the show, and much more. If you had a good time listening, please consider subscribing or leaving a rating and review. Also, if you know someone who'd enjoy the show, please tell them about it to help spread the word. Thanks again for listening to the Turn of Phrases podcast, researched, written, hosted, and produced by me, Brisky. Until next time, toppers, I hope you don't find any bad pennies. Toodaloo! Let me rephrase. It's defined as a shorty... No, (laughs) it's not. Sometime between the fourth and sixth... Sixth... (laughs) Popular collection of antidote... Nope, I knew I was going to mess up that word, but I put it in there anyway. An ancient Greek comedy written by Aristophanes. An ancient Greek comic... A Connecticut evangelical... That's not how you say that word.